Welcome to Homeschooling Co-op Style, a weekly podcast hosted by Pat Wesolowski. Pat began homeschooling her nine children more than 25 years ago. It didn't take her long to discover that co-ops were a perfect fit for her educational goals. Co-ops allowed her family to study together with other families, creating a safe and friendly environment that was conducive to honing public speaking skills. Sharing responsibilities with other parents lessened the stress and the workload. After years of organizing and orchestrating a variety of co-ops, Pat is here to encourage, teach, and promote homeschooling co-op style. Hi, and welcome to Homeschooling Co-op Style. I'm excited today that we're going to have Joyce Herzog with us on the show. We're going to be interviewing Joyce and talking about, oh, just all kinds of information. She is a wealth of information herself. She's an author, a speaker, a consultant, and been a friend to many, many, many homeschooling families for just a few years now. I know Joyce greatly impacted my life when I read her book, Learning in Spite of Labels, and as I got to know her more and more, seeing her at conferences and workshops where we were together, she's become a dear friend, and I really appreciate her heart for homeschoolers, as well as the amount of information she has and suggestions she has to help homeschooling families. One of the reasons I wanted to have her on the show today is, well, for one thing, I know she's a fan of co-ops, so we'll talk about that some, too. But I know that she has her hands on the pulse of homeschooling families today, and I know that she sees and is aware of sometimes the discouragement and the frustration that families are feeling and the struggles they're having, and she has a lot of good suggestions and encouragement. So listen in, and welcome to the show, Joyce. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate this opportunity. It's just it's been my life now for almost 25 years to help homeschooling families, and I really try in every way I know how. Well, and you have done a wonderful job and been a blessing to to many of us. I know one of the things that we worked together on was having you, when Karen and I wrote our co-oping manual on holding co-ops, and you visited the co-op and, and looked at what we were putting together. I know you were, you were excited about that. So let's start off talking a little bit about co-ops, and then we'll talk more about dealing with current frustrations. So what do you want to share about homeschooling co-op style? Well, in the first place, I actually joined a local group homeschooling with your material, and we had a great time. Kids were involved, oh, all the way down to the little threes and four-year-olds, and the adults were having fun, too, and we followed your instructions based on the books that we read. I even dressed up one day in a costume for part of it. Kids just loved that, of course, so... Co-ops give you the opportunity to do something with other families and not to be just isolated at home in your own world with your own kids. They are a wonderful opportunity. There is one danger that I have seen a bit of, and that's when you get so many at the co-op that you're actually dealing with another classroom of kids. So I do encourage you to keep the co-ops a little small, you know. You can do a co-op with three families. Tens of bunch, because if you each have four or five kids, you're talking 40, 50 kids and adults, and it can get pretty chaotic. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and I have seen that. And and I also know, too, once a co-op grows to that size, they oftentimes, not always, they're tempted to turn it into classroom situations, and then they begin separating the ages and and subject matter and everything else like that. And and that is one way to hold a co-op, and I know plenty of people have done them and done them successfully, but... As a mother of nine, I loved having all my children together with me and seeing what they were doing and being a part of it throughout the day. So 
I know some of the frustrations I see on, on some of the homeschool sites on Facebook for parents who co-op day ends up being more of a struggle for them than a blessing. Yet for me, it was a shared workload. It was it was seeing my friend, my children loving being there with their friends, and I got to be with my friends as well, which is equally important. So I never right. saw it as the burden that some people are seeing it as. And part of me wonders, what are they doing differently? Why is it? Why is it such a struggle for them? Because, you know, it was just one morning a week for us, but, but boy, it was one we all looked forward to. Well, I think what has happened, as happened in the public schools, at one time public schools, quote-unquote, were, you know, small groups of families local, and it just grew and grew until it's huge, a huge yeah. system that overlooks the littles and the individual people. And what I've seen with co-ops is sometimes when they grow so large, rather than splitting into smaller groups with just a few families, like you say, they start copying the school methods and forget that they're a co-op and try to become a substitute school. In fact, I do a lot of tutoring in my local area, and I'm I'm not going to mention names or anything, but I'm tutoring one family who's working in some sort of a situation where they go once a week and she's only got three children, but she can hardly get through all the work that they're assigned every single day Mm -hmm. for the rest of the week and even on weekends to finish up what they've been assigned. And I'm thinking this reminds me way too much of my years in the system instead of the joyful years I've had out of the system. Right, right, and we don't want to rob our families of that joy, plus it makes our lives just so much more stressful, and really, one of the things I like to encourage homeschooling families to think about is just incorporating learning as an everyday part of your life. I don't even think it should be segregated separately, except when you have assignments that you have to do, and then, of course, you'll do that work, but even then... I, I read the same books to the younger children as I did the older children, and the younger one might not understand at all. But I have found that reading a biography that's written to a younger child is enjoyed by all of us, even the adults. So there's there's a lot that you can continue to do and do together as a family that makes learning fun and an adventure and not stressful. Because if you if it's hard on the mom, it's gonna it's gonna be hard on the child. And if you don't look forward to it, they're not gonna look forward to it. And it sort of just ruins the rest of your day and your week and your month and your life. <laughs> you know, I give one workshop called, uh, oh, I've called it different things, but it's working with multi-ages or you can teach all your children at once. And speaking of reading the the picture books, basically, I have shown an audience of adults how I can intrigue them and involve them in a picture book about a science topic and really get them thinking. And they're, how can you do this? This is a picture book and I'm an adult. Yes, but every picture book covers that, a very small area of the big topic, but it covers it in a depth that you may never have thought about before. And it's amazing. I also take them into you know, doing a whole lot more than just reading aloud the text. Because Mm -hmm. before we ever get inside of the text, we've talked about the picture, if there is one on the, and of course there are on the picture books, the picture Mm -hmm. on the cover, who was the artist, who wrote it, are they good, what methods did they use, what did they draw a picture of it, is it painting or chalk or, you know, did they do it on the computer? I mean, we're looking at so many more things than just reading aloud a book, that everybody's involved. 
I'll do silly things like ask one of the people. I'll say, okay, you're a kindergartner. Can you find the letter W on this page? Or you're a third grader. Can you read this whole sentence? And I just have everybody be my kids for a few minutes. And mm-hmm. uh, I happen to use the word burrow. And it was about digging underground, that type of a burrow. So we discussed burrows and how mm-hmm. to spell those burrows. And there are three different ways to spell and think about burrows. There's so much more that you can do if you're not pressured to cover it all. And I think that's the biggest problem. The families that are having trouble, I think it's because they're trying to follow a curriculum that tells them what they ought to do grade by grade and year by year with every one of their kids, and they just get swamped. They can't do it. Well, guess what? Neither could I. I had 25 years teaching experience in the system, and uh, long towards the end of it, I was asked in a small Christian school if I would teach a double class, two grade levels in one room with their textbook curriculum. And I said, I've got a problem here. I've been teaching for almost 25 years. I cannot do that. I could manage two grade levels and tell you, okay, fourth graders, go do this. Okay, da-da-da, you got it? Okay, third graders, I'm talking to you now. Are you going to do this and da-da-da-da-da-da? And then I'd go back to the fourth. But I'd never be teaching. I would just be directing and assigning and trying to find time to grade all the papers because you have to do everything by paperwork and then grade the answers outside of school time. And instead, I I told the principal, I said, I would be happy to teach your kids reading, writing, arithmetic, history, science, music, art, literature, whatever we need to cover topic-wise, but I can't do it if I have to keep going through two grade levels of curriculum. I ended up with kids from the third grade through the seventh grade in the same room, and I taught them to read and write and do arithmetic and learn grammar, and we learned history, and we memorized scripture. It was amazingly wonderful. Well, the reason I could do that is because I wasn't tied to somebody else's definition of what I had to teach to each child because of their grade or their age level. Right, and and there is such joy in teaching that way because you are free then to enjoy life and incorporate everyday experiences, to to rabbit trail, to look up definitions, to figure things out. I mean, even when I I, I teach a teen co-op right now, and even today in the middle of it, we stopped and watched videos, and we watched a video about the gal who took her own life because she had cancer, and we talked about that a little while, and then we watched a video about a um, Hollywood star, I think it's Shia LaBeouf, who says he just became a Christian. And, you know, we rabbit trailed, but it was very um, on topic, really, because we're studying worldviews and we're talking about the importance of, you know, suicide and euthanasia and Hollywood stars who get the microphone who become Christians. And it, it's just all part of life and part of the real world. But I know to a parent who's listening Joyce, what they would say is, well, you can do that because you're creative, but I can't and I don't know how and I need something to tell me what to do and when to do it. And I hear that all the time and and I can understand that because I was like that as well. Fortunately, I had mentors like the gal who started me homeschooling and like you. 
and so many people in my life, and, and, and Mary Hood, who said, you know, relax, learn along with them. If you don't think you know it to teach it, then learn it with them. And, oh, boy, have I learned so much, and have I enjoyed learning so much. But uh, uh, so many parents are going to be afraid that their children will get behind or they're not doing what they should be, and they put far, far, far more emphasis on academics than they do the rest of their family life. But I know one illustration you give that I want to share again, and I've shared it in past podcasts. A, a wife feels like she has to be very responsible for the money she spends, and when she spends money on curriculum, she feels like she needs to use the curriculum. And so she will be going through it and hating every minute of it that feels like she needs to be faithful to being financially responsible. And I love when you told the parents, okay, if that's the case, then get that curriculum. Put it all on the table, stack it up, get a sheet, cover it with a sheet, and then say, there, I've covered that curriculum. And really, if we could do anything more than encourage these mothers to enjoy life, if something you're using isn't working, chuck it, get rid of it, sell it, give it away. Put it away till they're older. Maybe later you'll get something out of it. Many of the books I bought, I, I simply used as reference books. They were textbooks, but I didn't teach from them. I just used them as reference books. So there, there's so much that we can teach our children these days in such a fun way, and we can do it keeping them together all different ages. But I see so many parents just so frazzled they're they're not enjoying it, and it just breaks my heart. I know exactly what you're talking about, and as far as the books are concerned, it is comforting to study them all, look at them all, realize what you're asking of yourself, and then cover them with sheets and so forth. But another way to use it is, is exactly, I'm going to tag on what you were just saying, using the text as references. You decide your family wants to study butterflies. Maybe they found one in the backyard or you know, they're going to raise butterflies because you can you can buy butterfly eggs in cages now. In fact, you can do most little animals and raise them yourself. And you'll, kids will learn far more than reading a book about a butterfly. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you can tie the two together. And if everybody's going to be looking at and thinking about and talking about butterflies because you're going to be raising, hatching your own butterflies and setting them free, then every book in your house that says anything about a butterfly becomes one of your resources. You know, and I try to keep plenty of picture books and beginning readers and higher level readers and those textbooks at different grade levels. And if I've got a fourth grader that's looking at a picture book, it's okay. It's going to cover that piece of the information through the fourth grade, and he can enjoy the pictures even if he struggles to read. And, right. you know, you struggle a bit, okay, when, what, what about when they get to high school? Well, at high school, the emphasis becomes more on them doing the assignment. Read about, research, answer these questions, and then either write a report or speak, you know, it back to us as a family. And so many of those things you can do with your own kids. I had an opportunity, a family asked me if I would teach not only her children but some other children two subjects, and I'd go once a week in her home. And it was science and literature language art. And I did that, and they, of course, had segregated all their kids into grade levels because (laughs) they thought they had to do that. But the littles all had to come, so they were Mm -hmm. sitting in the background with their moms as we were doing this. And the first thing I did with the science was set the stage. We actually brought in all kinds of things that represented creation. 
So we had plants and little stuffed animals and, you know, different things, but we also had a light bulb, a candle, a balloon full of air. Well, one by one, we removed, we read the story, and we skipped day one, and we removed everything that God created on the rest of the days. And then at the end, we said, well, what do we do with this light and the heat from the candle and the air and the balloon? And, you know, when did all these things get created? Well, that was the first day. Mm -hmm. So we ended up taking the whole co-op one week on sound, one week on heat, one week on air, one week on light, et cetera. And I said, okay, here's your assignment. You read about uh, first week's light. You read about light, you study about light, you learn about light, whatever you want to do about light, and then you bring back a project next week about light. Mm -hmm. And, you know, by the end of six weeks, every little was participating with all the older ones as well. Yeah, I've seen that happen too. It's so cute. It is. You know, when a three-year-old can stand up and tell you, my picture, okay, that's all they may want to say. But they are starting to present in front of an audience and to have something to show. And it's great. It's just wonderful. Yeah, I've had parents come to talk with little ones and say, we're just going to observe. They're a little young for presentations. And I say, okay, because I let the parents decide and decide how often yeah. if they're going to give presentations and if they're going to give them. And it's funny because by second or third week, those children are telling their parents, I want to do a presentation. And, and the younger right. we start with them, putting them in front of a group in a safe and friendly environment, the less likely they are to ever develop a fear of public speaking. And so that's Absolutely. one of the reasons I encourage homeschooling co-op style because even if you have nine children, which I do, it's not the same having your children give a presentation at home for family as it is giving nope. it to a mixed audience of different ages and adults and, and other people. And and to yeah. me, if, there, if you did nothing else but got together so the children could do the presentations, but then again, you're teaching those little ones how to become independent learners so that when they are teenagers, you don't That's have right. to worry about what you've left out, what you haven't covered, what they might not have learned, because when they need the information, they'll know how to get it. And that brings us up right. so much. That's right. And the other thing the mothers were amazed at was, well, you're teaching this co-op? And I said, yep, that's right. I'm teaching this co-op. But you're not teaching us anything. Um, this is so easy for you. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, because I turned the kids into learners instead mm -hmm. of obedient followers of my instructions. And right. the whole difference got caught by those families. And I'm, I'm reasonably sure very few of them went back to following a curriculum. One thing right. I also often say, Pat, is that curriculum makes a great guide but an awful God. And when you oh, turn that true. curriculum into your God, you have, you don't even know the author. You don't know what was in their real mind behind their creating what they did. And in many places, even if it's called Christian, it's a secular worldview that is coming out in the materials and the way you're teaching them. So I'm all for using it as a tool but never making it so important that I can't get away from it. Well, and I even, in one Facebook comment I saw this week, a gal said that she just felt like her homeschooling adventure was a failure and she was thinking of putting the child back in public school and what should she do. And she 
And when she described what was going on, well, first of all, I realized the child's very young, and he was a male, and males were not created to sit in a chair for four, six, eight hours a day. And he'd really? run around and be outside and play. And, I, you know, I, I suggested that, you know, I think that child home with you, even in the absence of all academics, would still be preferable. But it's not an either-or scenario. And unfortunately, right. for some reason, the mothers put so much more emphasis on the academics than anything else. And I think that comes from the pressure of the outside world. That comes from um, wanting to please their husbands. And in my case, my dad was a university professor, so I felt a little intimidated that he was going to pick apart everything I did. And, and, and so for different reasons, we put so much emphasis on them being able to chew up, bit out, quote facts, sound intelligent, when really it's a learning process and what we want is for them to love learning and to learn how to learn. That's what we want. We want them to be independent learners who learn how to learn. And I don't know about you, but my goal in high school was just to finish school and close the book because they were all boring. And I didn't learn to love learning until I began homeschooling. And then I thought, gosh, all those wasted years. (laughs) I graduated from college with the paper in my hand that said I was a teacher. I was a student on Friday and a teacher on Monday. And what an opening eye that was, because I realized I was really good at pleasing the teacher. I was really doing what they asked me to do. But when I got out there and I had a job, there was nobody telling me what to do. And I was in shock. I had to become, almost overnight, a person who knew what to do and followed through all the way with it on my own. And it, I, I don't see that issue with homeschooling families unless they've brought school home. And right. I just can't say enough. If you bring home school, here's another one of my, I call it maybe Joyceisms or something, because my thought is if it works, send them there. If it doesn't, don't import it. Right, and that's brilliant. That is so true. And, you know, I I was fortunate because I started homeschooling 29 years ago. The first year it became legal in Florida, and my mentor said, don't bring the school into the home. And I thought, oh, no, that'll be good. It'll be cute. We'll have our desk. We'll pledge allegiance. We'll have our maps. And and I I didn't listen to her at first, and I brought the school into the home for about two weeks, and that's about how long it lasted. And then I realized, you know, so much more fun to make life just a part of learning a part of life and a, and a daily thing. And we we obviously scheduled some events, and especially we've co-opted almost every year. So we scheduled co-ops, and we had presentations, and, and we we did schedule events, but but we didn't follow the guidelines or the the scope and key sequence and everything that somebody else thought children need to know by a certain time. And what we did do was let our children know, you know, if there's something you don't know and you need to know it, you can ask questions, we can look it up, you can find it out, you can learn it. And it took a while for them to be secure in that because they would often get quizzed and be embarrassed if they didn't know something somebody else thought they needed to know. But once they realized everybody can't know everything, I mean, even is it Henry Ford who, who was quizzed on trial of all this information, and he said, well, why would I need to know that? I can push a button, call in a person, and get the answer. So, you know, we need to prioritize what's important. We're going to take a quick break, and then when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about character because it's one of the things that I know you stress in your book, Learning in Spite of Labels, and, and I think that's another thing that parents need to think deeply about. So we'll be back in just a minute. We need to take a break for a word from our sponsor. 
Many homeschooling families participate in some type of dual enrollment program, and oftentimes a student has finished one or more years of college before they even graduate high school. The ad you're about to hear is from Dr. Livesay, president of Bryan College. I've been a fan of Bryan College for years, and I'm excited about their amazing dual enrollment program. If you live near Dayton, like we do, your dual enrolled child can attend classes on campus. However, if you're not close enough to attend a class, your child can take online classes for the unbelievably low price of $100 an hour. And, if you're a Tennessee resident, their dual enrollment funds available for high school students as well. You'll be hard-pressed to find a Christian college with a strong worldview emphasis that offers dual enrollment at this low price. So listen up and check it out. Hello, I'm Stephen Livesay, president of Bryan College, and I'd like to tell you about an exciting offer to assist homeschool families. Bryan seeks to provide a stimulating online environment where our students experience a deepening love for God and His truth. And at $100 per credit hour, your child can finish high school and receive college credit at the same time. To learn more about your child enrolling in Bryan's dual enrollment program, where all classes are taught from a Christian worldview, Contact us at online at bryan.edu, that's B-R-Y-A-N dot E-D-U, or visit bryan.edu slash online. All right, now Joyce, I know in your book, Learning in Spite of Labels, you talk about children with different, um, oh, children who are labeled because they learn differently and how we need to not do that and just realize that children do learn differently but that we also need to put a high importance on character. And I know if if we have a child who is not obedient and respectful and kind, then our homeschooling adventure is not going to be fun no matter what we do, and it's going to be like pulling teeth, and we're going to be miserable. So talk a little bit about those issues, about how children learn differently and about the emphasis on character, and just share share your heart. Well, that's a wide open thing because you're exactly right. We all learn differently. If our world were mechanically oriented, my husband would be labeled gifted and I would be labeled, you know, learning disabled or some horrible title that they come up with mechanically disen- disenchanted or whatever because my skills don't lie in the same area his do. But we work together, and the things I'm good at, I do. The things he's good at, he does, and we become a team. And that's really how any group is formed, not by separating people out by what they can't do, like the school system does, but rather separating or joining people by what they can do. And one thing I'm going to say about our kids who learn differently, don't spend all your time on their weaknesses. Define, discover, and build their strengths. Encourage them in their the things they can do. I know one family had a little guy that didn't speak, and they literally changed everything when he was like three years old because They've been told by somebody if they're not speaking by the time they're three, that's just dreadful, dreadful. So they switched him into speech therapy, and they focused on speech. By the time he was five, you couldn't shut him up. He learned how to speak all right, but he had no other skills. Couldn't hold a pencil, couldn't use a pair of scissors. The only thing he could do is talk. And so I I, I just say don't. Don't do that. 
And the other thing that I'm going to say is we worry way too early about paper and pencil and sit down and do what I say. Mm. I believe that every child, every day, is ready to learn something. You know, there's this big fight over early or late. Do you teach them to read when they're little tiny or wait until they're 13? I have to say, it varies a lot on the child and their interests Mm -hmm. and their talents. And from those interests and talents come their passions that are going to lead them to follow God's pull on their lives. But if we completely surround them with, you do what I say, you do this, you do these 14 pages and these 25 books every single day for the rest of your your school days, and then we'll figure out what you're good at, uh, I hate to say it, but they're probably not going to be much good at anything except being rebellious. Early on, the most important thing to teach is character. Teach them to love and to be kind and to obey. If they don't learn to listen and obey by the time they're four or five, you're going to have a battle on your hands. I also say that's another thing I'm seeing in these comments on these homeschool groups of parents who they say, my life is miserable, my two- and four-year-olds won't do what I say, and by the time I go to bed, I'm just, I'm so upset. And and as I read it, I realize, you know, so many of these families have children run homes. They're letting the children dictate what they're doing and when they're doing it, and they're miserable, and they're not enjoying it, and, and they aren't taking their authority seriously enough to make changes, and, and their solution then becomes what? Put them in a school, put them somewhere else, put them out of sight, put them out of mind, you know, instead of training them. Right, and it's so much more important to teach a child before you even are concerned academically to teach them to respond to you, to be obedient, to be respectful, to be kind. I mean, those things make for so much more of an enjoyable home and environment that then when the learning opportunities come, it's very easy to take advantage of them. Whereas the opposite is true, if you're using curriculum that, that's boring and tedious and your children aren't even respectful or or obedient, you're going to be pulling teeth no matter how you do it. So there needs to be a balance there. So go ahead and tell us some more. <laughs> I think that is extremely, extremely true. And one thing that I saw, in because I was in the field of special education in the school systems for almost 25 years before I went into homeschooling more than 20 years ago. And one of the things that I saw, I taught in two different schools for, at the time, called handicapped children. And one of them was, oh, what sweet little children, aren't they, darling? Don't ever make them sad. Don't make them work too hard. No, that's way too hard. They might cry or they might fuss. That's too hard. Just let them have fun and play. And they literally, the year before I came, it was a class of nonverbal children through the age of eight. Mm. Now picture that. Mm. And my youngest was three and Down syndrome. My oldest was nine, I, well, I guess eight, because it was a class when they turned nine the next year they left. And she, um, I think she might have been, at that time, again, called mildly mentally retarded. But, boy, she could have learned so many things. But the year before, the only thing they had done was sit at the piano and, quote, unquote, sing, even though they didn't sing and didn't speak. And the other thing, main activity that they did was use a paintbrush with water and wood shingles 
and paint the wood shingles and watch them dry. And I'm mm. thinking, how is that going to benefit them as adults? Because they're going to grow up, whether we plan for it or not. And what mm. are they going to be able to do? Sit at the piano and sing and paint with water. Mm. The other one was just things bad in the opposite direction. Your children are not sitting in their seats with a book. What's wrong? What are you doing? Aren't you teaching them? Yes, we were down in the gymnasium learning to listen and move and think as a group. We were in the classroom sitting and listening to a story being read or drawing pictures, but we didn't always have a paper and pencil sitting straight up in a desk. Mm-hmm. I think we tend to go to extremes, and we tend to either start them way too early with paper and pencil when they're two, or mm-hmm. we wait until they're eight or nine. Well, in reality, every child, every day, is ready to learn something. Something. Yeah. Something. Yeah. And they may be learning I hate school, but that's not <laughs> what you were planning to teach. We have to think more about our children, who they are, why we are doing what we're doing. Are we doing it to be miserable and make our kids miserable? or to prepare them for a life that we can't even define or describe because it's what will technology be in 20 years, in 10 years, in 5 years? I don't know. So I've right, got to prepare. Think. Go ahead. And what what how are you dealing with this age of technology now? I I'm praising God that mine are grown. I have one left in high school, but we didn't have all these these little gadgets and gadgets and everything else when ours were little and some of them are very useful. I know they're all tools, so what we have to look at them, I mean, the tool in and of itself is not good or bad. It's it's our utilization of the tool. But as a parent, how do you decide when and where to start using the pads and the tablets and, and everything else that's there? Because some of it is, is just amazing and fun and bright and loud and colorful and teaches eye-hand coordination, and then you wonder, are you doing more damage than good, and do you need to limit it? And, and uh, I feel sorry for the parents who have to figure all this out and deal with it, even though yeah. I'm, I'm not one that has to do it now. But but I see it even with my grandchildren, and, and when they spend time with me, too, we'll have fun getting on the tablet and looking things up and going here and there and singing songs. And So I know they can be very useful, but what are your thoughts about homeschooling and, and electronics and technology? Well, as you say, it's a tool. It's not – I'd hate to see a child sitting on a computer all day long just responding to a computer instead of people because mm-hmm. it's not teaching them to interact. And the one, one of the benefits of homeschooling is that they learn to interact with people of all ages, from the baby sister to, you know, the neighbor's people or grandma or grandpa or the older folks in their church and so forth. And when you put them on a screen, they go back into that same little – box of I'm, you know, as a four-year-old, I'm watching all the other four-year-olds doing four-year-old stuff. And so I think, you know, and like you, I did not grow up in the technology age. In fact, I'll tell you the truth. I didn't even use a computer. I didn't know how to type until my honeymoon. My husband brought in a computer and said, okay, this is a computer. And I learned how to use it. And he gave me a typing tutor. And I learned how to hit those letters before they dropped and exploded because it was so scary. And, and so, and I didn't have children. So, 
I'm coming at this from a teaching and special needs perspective. But what I can tell you is that one of the proven causes, in fact, the only one that I've ever heard of the proven cause of ADHD is screens before the age of two. And by screens, I mean the televisions, the computers, and so forth. Yes. And one time a friend of mine and I were on a flight, an air flight, to go somewhere, and we were talking about this. And what we did, one of, we, you know how they have that little video that tells you what you have to learn every single time you fly because you never heard it before. Right. And, <laughs> and we, we watched and listened, and one of us counted how many seconds the screen stayed still. And the other one counted how many seconds did one voice, did you hear one voice before a different voice took over? Uh-huh. And the average was less than seven seconds, uh-huh. both the movement uh-huh. and the audio. Well, I don't know about you, but I can't change how I look, who I am, how I sound every seven seconds and make any sense whatsoever. Right. And so right. we're actually with many things, and especially, you know, the movies and all that kind of stuff, that the games on the computers, one of the things we're teaching them is that, this, you know, they they can react to something every seven seconds, but they're not learning to really engage their brains in real right. life. Now, right. like you say, there are some awesome things that the tablets will do. There are, you know, great games that will let them practice their math facts or whatever. There are even whole curricula on the computer where they do every subject all day long sitting on the computer. So you can kind of tell my feelings about that as you heard it. And by the way, I know you didn't ask for this, but I tried to help a gal on a, the K-12 program. I shouldn't have said that. But anyway, on a computer program, and she was doing seventh grade math. And I was supposed to be tutoring her in seventh grade math. And after about six weeks, I had her dad sit there with me, and I said, okay. I asked her to read a a question, and each of us would read the question. My husband, myself, and the dad would read the same question, and we'd all try to decide what the answer was. Mm -hmm. And the three adults couldn't figure it out. Oh, my goodness. Because (laughs) seventh grade. And the reality is it's no longer teaching in any kind of a way that enjoys and encourages real-life thinking. Right. And I'm finding that more and more regarding the common core. That's all I'll say. I shut up. We need to be very careful. I had a friend call me one time and she said, can you help me figure out what the predicate is in this sentence? And I said, well, okay, let me go get my book and look up what a predicate is because I don't remember. So I got my grammar book. I looked up what a predicate was, and I said, okay, read it. She read it. I said, why are you doing this? Because I couldn't figure out the answer. She says, it's my mm-hmm. son's assignment. And I said, does he like it? She said, he hates it. And I said, well, you know what? You and I are both functioning adults, and neither of us can figure it out. So why does he need to know this? <laughs> now, most English majors would have a fit if they heard that, and they would think, oh, my goodness, but do you know how few people even know how to diagram a sentence? And when do you learn how to diagram a sentence? Not until after you've learned how to write, usually well, anyway. And even then, you never write sitting down thinking, okay, am I diagramming this right? You remember little rules like not ending a sentence with a 
is it prepositions? <laughs> Did I remember that rule right? Maybe I should take uh, that out no, of here. No, it, it was a dangling participle, you know. A dangling part. Yeah, see, I don't even remember that. But when I read sentences, I recognize which ones are written well and which ones need some more work. Mm-hmm. So it, mm-hmm. it, you know, you realize so much of what people think we need to know, we, we don't really need to know. And it's like you saying, when you one day you were a student, the next day you were a teacher, the license you were given was really a license to learn how to become a teacher because they hadn't That's taught right. you how to teach. They gave you That's the license. Right. Same thing when, when I took real estate. I learned the laws and I passed a test and I became a realtor, but I knew nothing about showing a house and listing property and selling property until I got out there and experienced it and, and I did it. And another thing, too, which, which rang a bell when you were talking, so many parents think they cannot teach their children because they're not teachers, but when you think about it, we start teaching our children the moment they're born. We just don't use Absolutely. curriculum usually. And by the time yeah, they're ready for school, which used to be five or six years, and now they're saying earlier and earlier, but before then we had not used curriculum and we had taught them on different schedules, when to talk and or, or how to talk and walk and everything else. I even found a Christmas letter I wrote years ago, and it said, my, my fifth son finally learned how to walk. He was the first one who did not walk before he was a year old. And, and when you realize, you know, all our children are different. They're going to walk at different ages. They're going to talk at different ages. They're going to have different strengths and different weaknesses. And, and really, we have put far too much emphasis on trying to overcome the weaknesses instead of encouraging the strengths. And, and yet, that seems to be what should be the most important thing because more than likely, their strengths go along with their gifts and their talents and what they love doing. And, and it's probably going to end up being something they do the rest of their life. So, you know, we should acknowledge the weaknesses. It helps us to know, okay, this is an area of weakness, and you may or may not be able to compensate for that. Um, It's good to be aware of it so we don't use it as a crutch or an excuse or blame or anything else like that. But if we use our gifts and our talents for for the glory of God and his kingdom, then we're going to be much more higher-functioning adults and probably much happier And helping our children discover that as a parent, it's just such a fun adventure. That's right. And, Pat, you you brought something else to my mind because one of the things that I have found as I've talked to homeschooling moms, you know, for years and years, that they don't want to teach certain subjects because they don't understand those subjects and don't feel that they were taught for instance, grammar, you brought that up, or algebra, or, you know, especially when they get into the high, I can't teach that. I didn't do well in it. And so mm-hmm. and and so what they tend to do is go by the same type of curriculum that didn't teach them and try to use it to <laughs> not teach their kids. Just, and when yeah. I put it that way, they suddenly go, oh, um, you're right. I went through that whole same kind of curriculum I just bought for my kid, and it didn't work for me. Well, very few people learn best by reading a textbook, answering the questions at the end, and taking a test on it. In fact, most of us could not pass most high school texts. Why? Because it was irrelevant information learned when we didn't need it, had no use for it, so we tossed it out of our heads to make room for the next chapter, the next lesson, the next unit. Right. And, right. you know, 
Like we continually are saying, we need to not do that to our kids. That's what was done to us. But if we try to use the same methods that did it for us, we'll probably meet with the same kind of failure. And you mentioned one of the books I've written. I want to mention another one. It's uh, Luke's School List. Because I've said, if you had a list of all of the rules of punctuation or capitalization, would it take you 12 years to teach your child to put a period at the end of a sentence? No. Probably not. Well, <laughs> probably not. Then why do you have to buy 12 years worth of English books? In, and you mentioned predicate. Most people don't know what a predicate is. But I, I'm not going to go into that, but I've done a grammar program too. In fact, I've got a book called Six Weeks to Understanding Grammar, and every adult can understand grammar in six weeks and most high school students with that little book, and it's very inexpensive. But the Luke School List honestly lists, quote, unquote, everything you could or should or might think about wanting to teach a child between kindergarten and eighth grade in one book. Two-thirds of which is blank. It covers <laughs> reading, writing, arithmetic. I'm not kidding. It covers reading, writing, arithmetic, history, science, music, art, and literature from kindergarten through the eighth grade. And the reason two-thirds of it is blank is it's, it's an outline of all the concepts. You know, did you go buy a textbook to teach your child to tie his shoes? Right. No. <laughs> Why not? Because you knew how to tie your shoes. And so you just taught him to tie his shoes. Did you need a textbook to teach you how to spell his name or to tell him how to spell it? Or did you ever show him how to write his name before he learned his letters? You know, the thing is, we teach yeah. what we feel comfortable teaching. Well, if uh, you had a book with all that stuff in it, you could look it up. Well, actually, you know what it frees you to do? Teach what they're ready for until they're in about the sixth grade. Then hand them the book and say, read through this. And right. see if there's anything you think that you need to know that you really want to learn about, and we'll find a way to teach you those things. Right. And, you know, that reminds me, I, I used to say jokingly in some of my workshops that I bet you could try not to teach a child anything until his senior year, and then in that one year, if he's motivated, willing, and able, and not in a coma, you could probably cover everything that had been covered the previous 11 years and get it all done in one year. And and I, and I would say that to parents because so many people are struggling over, did I teach 180 days this year? Have I taught anything today? And I'm thinking, if they're with you and they're, they're, they're awake, you're teaching them something. So one of them <laughs> to have a little more confidence that, so what if you mess up the first 11 years? You could just, you could just catch up the 12th year. And, and I jokingly said that and didn't really anticipate actually doing that until my number seven child, um, in his senior year, we realized, you know, you need to take a test. You need to get a certain score. I've taught co-op style. I've been very relaxed. Um, now we need to, to teach to the test. So in one year, we're going to see if we can get done everything that, that you're supposed to have learned and known by this time that other people think is important. So you can jump through this hoop that somebody else, you know, sets that bar out there, and we, we have to meet it. So we did that. We did that. He got it. He did well, got his test score, and, and, and then he was off to the next you know, the next thing. So I do think if parents realize how little children remember and how when it's important and relevant to them, how quickly they grasp it, 
they would be much more confident. I remember reading Winston Churchill's biography and how he was so miserable at math, such a failure at math, that when he left school, and I believe it was college, he thought he was a failure. And he joined, I think he joined a militia, and he went to Africa, if I'm getting my story straight. Well, his mom mailed him a bunch of books. Well, he loved reading, and and yet his self-esteem was so low because his teachers had said so many negative things to him because of his math scores that he, he just thought he was a failure. But the books she sent him just made him fall back in love with learning or fall in love with learning. And, and we all know what became of Winston Churchill. You know, I mean, he, right. he, he was quite the orator and remembered for, for especially never give up, you know. But, but when you read that and you think, how could somebody like him think he was a miserable failure because he he finally learned in spite of labels but he was labeled a failure and he believed it and so as parents it's so encouraging to discover your children's strength and they are so different and and it is neat to find ways to help them use their strengths and grow in that and and just to learn to love learning, that's that's the important part. And I love the idea of just enjoying life till about sixth grade and then giving them that book and say, by the way, this is what, you know, you really need to know, so study it. <laughs> right. And, you know, so many of those things you really need to know, we don't remember later anyway. It, the, the facts aren't really what's important because you can look up any fact in an encyclopedia. It's the the process of learning, and that can be taught studying chocolate or anything else you want to study. You know, you right. can learn the process of learning and studying and reviewing, researching, writing, and all those kinds of things, amazingly. And uh, Ben Franklin was another like that as well, Pat. He also was horrible at math, and he only had one year of schooling. But do you know that he's the one who invented the magic math square that is the basis for, what is it, Sudoku, or I don't know how to say that. I don't play that game, but that everybody loves now. He invented wow. that because later in life he was much more interested in math than he was as a child. He didn't need it. Yeah. So yeah. we have to wow. think about that. And Mary Pride said something similar to what you just said, too. She said years and years ago, she said, if you didn't teach your child one thing academically until he was 18, which, you know, senior year high school, 17, along in there. But you taught him to love the Lord. You taught him to read, you know, read the scriptures, to understand. You taught him manners and you taught him character and you, you know, did, taught him to be a servant. But you didn't teach him any academics at all. It wouldn't take him at the max three years to recoup everything you hadn't done. On the other hand, if you cover, cover to cover, read, do all the exercises, take all the tests, write all the assignments in every subject at every grade level from kindergarten through the eighth grade or the twelfth grade or whatever, you are likely going to have a burnout kid who hates mm -hmm. school and the trouble they can get into when they're four and five is multiplied exponentially when they get a car key. So you don't want them to set out to play when they're finally adults. Right. You want them right. to have time to play as children so that they'll be ready to tackle adult life when they become adults. And I think we, right. we lose sight of that. So instead of worrying so much about 
you know, can they pass this test or can they, you know, do they finish every assignment? Let me tell you a secret. I have a workshop called, actually two of them called Secrets Teachers Never Tell. And the teachers, the public school teachers who are supposedly the experts that we're looking to follow, I don't know that that's true, but we think that as homeschool moms, like, wow, they really know what they're doing. <clears throat> Number one, they don't. Number two, they're learning. It took me 10 years to become what I considered a good teacher. You don't have 10 years because in 10 years, you're 5-year-old, 15, and you're 10-year-old out of the home. <laughs> but one of the things that um, they don't have enough time to learn to teach, as a homeschool mom, you don't have time to learn to be a good teacher according to a teaching career. But what you do have is a love for your child and interest in him eternally, not just in this life, but in the next, and a caring that he becomes ready to take his role in God's world, God's call on him. And for those things, yeah, I think he probably will need to read, write, do arithmetic. But how much of the rest of academia does he really need? It's more important that he learn to think rationally than that he do everything. We have some fathers, the old guard, you know, we're we're kind of the pioneers in the homeschool movement, as you are, having started homeschooling way back when, and, you know, the rest of us started working with homeschoolers way back when. But I have two parents, two dads, who have said such wise things about teaching their kids. One of them said, if the only thing you did was read aloud biographies to your kids through the fifth grade, if that's all you did was read aloud biographies, you would have better educated kids than our kids today. Mm-hmm. And I have and to say, fun that would I, be. I love biographies. Yes. And I read every one of the Childhood of Famous American biographies in the fourth grade. And it was part of what made me want to do some – I saw those kids from childhood through their achievements mm-hmm. as adults. And I said, I want to do something with my life like that. I want to be an adult who makes a difference. Right. And I believe right. That's I so have been. You have. And, and we're so grateful you have, too. And one of the things that I see parents concerned about, and you've touched on this, and concerned about when their children learn to read, and, you know, I say never, ever do you have to fill out a job application as an adult. Will they ask you when you learn to read? They just want to know that you can read by the time you're an adult, and we even had one president who did not learn to read till his wife taught him. So we even put far too much emphasis on that because it's, I mean, obviously you want your child to learn to read, and they're going to learn a lot more quickly when they can read for themselves, but that's not necessary to ensure success in other areas of their life. And I don't know if you're familiar with Andy Andrews, but He's he's from Florida. He's a public speaker, author, writer, and um, teach leadership seminars. He has some great YouTubes. But he, both his parents died when he was 17, and he became homeless, and he was live, living under a bridge in Gulfport, Florida. And he started going to the library and just checking out biographies. That's what he did, and that's what motivated him to become a better person and to, to make a difference in this world, and he has. And, you know, we talked, too, about assigning the more juvenile readers to our children or reading the the younger versions of things to them. I know the year that my son was catching up on everything, 
I realized, you know, I could give them a couple of biographies to read that are in-depth and have a lot of pages and a lot of information, or I can give them all the younger biographies of a lot of different people. I mean, you know, they were short enough. He could read one a day, and he did. So he, he read a lot of them, and, and that helped that that helped him a lot that year as well. So his, if we could just relieve the fear that moms have that they're going to fail if they don't teach a certain a certain subject by a certain time, then we've done well. Because if they just love their children and teach their children to be loving and kind and love God and obedient and, and just pray that God will open up the path and give them wisdom and sh- give them direction. You know, I, I could talk another hour about each of my children and how God has shown me their strengths in ways that I never would have seen. Like, I'll just give you one example. My second oldest daughter, we moved from Florida to Tennessee her senior year. Well, in Florida, thanks to Brenda Dickinson, our kids could play sports all their years in high in as a homeschooler. But we got to Tennessee. That was not legal. It did not become legal until just two years ago. So 14 years it took before that became legal. So when we moved here, she pretty much thought her life had ended. We were in a small town. There were barely any homeschoolers, not enough to make a team of anything, and she wasn't allowed to play sports. And at first she was devastated, but she picked up a guitar, and she realized she was very talented musically, and she didn't get that from her mom or dad. And she could play the guitar, and she could write songs, and she could sing, and she wrote music. And and it changed her life. In the next two years, she toured with Campus Crusade Keynote and went all over the country in bands. And so it was really neat. And that was something that you know I would not have seen. I mean, God definitely opened that door and, and showed it to us. And, and it's neat that we can trust him to do that. And we don't have to put as much of a burden on our shoulders as we're putting that what we need to do is what it tells us in the Old Testament is to teach them to meditate on and know the scriptures and obey them. That's the key to success and prosperity. It's not anything academically, and and academics will help them, of course, and we're not saying throw out the baby with the bathwater, but the emphasis needs to be more on the relationship with your family and with your Lord. Boy, have you said a mouthful and a half in that, that little segment. And it's so true because you do. Teaching godliness is far more important than any of the academics and praying for your kids and leading them in the scriptures. Man, that you need to do daily. Memorize scripture. But all the other things we worry about are, are mostly superfluous. But I wanted to tell you about that other dad because the one said if you only read biographies through the mm-hmm. sixth grade, you'll be fine. The other dad told had three sons, and he told his sons, if any of you can't read by the time you're 12, I'll be happy to teach you to read. And then he took all the pressure off himself and his kids. Mm-hmm. Now, I know there are experts who would just, oh, my gosh, they probably have a heart attack when I say that. <laughs> but the reality is I have seen dyslexic kids, labeled or not, whatever, who learn to read by age 12. And in learning in spite of labels, one of the little facts that's got in there is that in the old days when our country was founded, we expected kids to learn to read by age 12 so that they could read the scriptures. That was the founding of our nation and its education system was to teach children to read the scriptures. Now our presidents say they have to learn to read by the age of eight. 
You can't imagine how much money that makes me, Pat, because I I am hired by lots of families to teach these boys to read at 8 or 9 or 10. And, okay, I can do that, and I can earn money. And, and I do think I'm blessing the families, and I'm blessing the kids. But most of them would eventually figure it out on their own. Taking all the responsibility on our own shoulders and say, God, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to do this, but you do. Please lead me. Because our tendency is to depend on ourselves. Or as you were saying quite a while ago, you were giving all the reasons why we feel like we can't uh, homeschool well enough. And they were all peer pressure. We tell our kids don't bow to peer pressure. And then we as parents, oh, my goodness. But my sister's kids are, oh, but the school kids are, Oh, but mm-hmm. it's all peer pressure. And we need, yeah. as you just said, we need to bow before God, ask his forgiveness. And for some of us, the most important thing we can do with one of our kids that we've been <clears throat> hounding about what they're not learning is to go mm-hmm. and say, I'm so sorry. I apologize. Will you forgive me? I know mm-hmm. you're going to learn to read. And I've really mm-hmm. been pushing it, and that was wrong. We'll take it a little easier You'll learn to read. I am confident because I know God wrote a book, and I know he wants you to learn to read. So I have no doubt that you're going to learn to read, and I'll help you anytime, any way I can, but I'm going to stop forcing it down your throat. I had a son one time come to me, and, and while well, I asked him, if you could change anything in your life, what would you change? He was 14. He said that I'm not so dumb. Well, this 14-year-old was buying and selling, buying and selling trailers, motorbikes and even cars before he could drive them and making a profit i had to go to the store and buy a spray paint because he wasn't old enough to do it he could rebuild a car engine practically construction amazing i mean what he could do and i said what makes you think you're dumb well his buddies at church who went to school told him he was dumb because he hadn't taken algebra and i said are you kidding me i said you can measure a roof you can lay it out you can order the materials you can square it up you know algebra like they don't even have a clue and he says, well, I want to learn it from the book. So I says, okay, I own books. I bought books. I have books. Here, here's an algebra book. And it's funny because people would laugh that most parents are forcing their children to use the book. <laughs> and my children asked me. So I gave him the book. He did a couple of chapters, and he went, uh, never mind, I don't like this. <laughs> he didn't do it anymore. Well, he didn't do very much of anything in the books in high school, really very little. And, and I kept, you know, he did co-ops, and, and I talked a lot about that because I have that's what this podcast is all about. So we covered a wealth of information in co-ops, but he didn't do a lot in books. But he did he did um, start studying when he got in Civil Air Patrol because he wanted to move up the ranks and be the leader. So he had to study leadership and aerodynamics and read things that I couldn't believe he could read, and he did it, and he did well. And he he ended up being um, in the Army. He called me one time and said, I'm going to become an EMT. We're taking a class that normally takes 18 months in four months. And I said, David, that might be a problem because your math and science background is probably not the same background as most of these kids. And I hear it's kind of important to have a heavy math and science background to do well in these courses, and you're talking about doing it in less than a third of the time. He said, it's okay, Mom. A lot of them don't pass the first time. We just take it again. And he wasn't worried. I said, okay. Well, of course, he passed it in four months. Why? He was an adult. (laughs) He cared. He knew what he had to do. He could jump through the hoops. It mattered. It mattered to him. 
And, right. and and here was a boy who did so little in the books that if people were aware of it, they probably would have called Child Protective Services. I mean, you know, they probably would have thought, boy, this mom is not. But he was outside and he was building and he was learning and he was working and he was a hard worker and, and he's an entrepreneur today. I mean, it's amazing what he's done. And, and, and I've seen that with all my children in different ways, and, and it is neat. And so what I want parents to hear from what you're saying and what I'm saying is, just relax, just enjoy your family, enjoy the relationship, and teach them about God and His Word. And if you're going to memorize a lot of stuff, make it be His Word. Hide that His Word in your heart, and the rest will fall into place. And as they discover their gifts and their talents, and they say, Mom, I think I really want to do this, then you can find opportunities for them to find out if, yeah, that's something they really want to do or maybe not want to do once they can get in and try it and get their feet wet. But the academics is just so, it, it should be so much lower on the totem pole than it has become that we just, I, I just want to free these parents up to enjoy life. So I'm so okay. glad you were on the show today. I'm glad you shared what you shared, but I don't want you leaving without telling people how to get in touch with you. I know you, you can be a consultant either in person or I would imagine over the phone as well. And I know you have books and, and, uh, you in the past have spoken at conferences. I don't know that you do that so much anymore, but at least tell people how to get in touch with you. Okay. On the website, I'm JoyceHerzog.com. And as far as how do you spell her zog, well, that's her dog and I'm her zog. Just H-E-R-Z-O-G, as easy it can be. And I'm on Facebook. I have Scaredy Cat Reading System, my reading program, which works with all kinds of learners and all ages of learners. We've seen, <laughs> you talked about a wife teaching her husband. We had that happen. The wife found out about Scaredy Cat Reading System, took it home, taught her husband. The next year they oh, were wow. back at my booth selling my products. And Aww. we've had three-year-olds in it, so Scaredy Cat Reading System has a page on Facebook. I'm also on Twitter at Joyce underscore Herzog, at Joyce underscore Herzog. And I'm freely available. I give out my phone number, which is the cell phone I'm talking on right now. It's 423-553-6387. My email, Joyce Office at AOL.com. That's J-O-Y-C-E-O-F-F-I-C-E at AOL.com. So I'm available, and I my heart is to help families. And, you know, any child who struggles is not just a problem. They are a family. And all children problems affect the whole family. So I end up doing a lot of family counseling as well because sometimes it's just, like you say, the expectations mom has that aren't going to get met for this child in the way she's planned. And so sometimes it's just saying, take a breath. This child will survive and probably will thrive. Just relax and trust God. It's his child first. And you are only the caretaker for the number of years you have them. So trust that he has a plan and that that child will fit into that plan. Because one of the things I have realized is God wastes nothing. His trash container is empty and he doesn't throw any people in it ever. (laughs) He has a job, a life, a plan for each of your children. And what I don't want you to do 
is to get so tied up and nervous about meeting the curriculum or following what somebody else is doing or getting them up to grade level. Don't worry about those things. Talk to God and get them up to God level instead of grade level. Oh, that's good. God level instead of grade level. I like that. Too. I that's never great. said that before. That came right out of my mouth at that moment from God, I believe. I think so. I think so. And I'm glad it was on our show. And what a great that's way to right. end. Uh, well, Joyce, thanks so much for joining us today. And, and, and uh, thanks for the encouragement you've been to so many over the years. And I would encourage everybody listening to get a copy of Learning in Spite of Labels. That book has so much information in it. Even if you have a child that you don't feel has been labeled, it talks about parenting in a way that would be applicable to everyone who reads it. So it's really got a lot of good information. So Joyce, thank you so much. And we will get the podcast up and put links to it. And you just have a great week. Thank you so much. And I just pray for all of your nine littles who aren't little anymore that they fulfill God's call on their life as you're obviously doing now. God bless you, Kathy. Thank you so much. You too. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. If you like what you heard, be sure to tell your friends. And until next time, this has been Homeschooling, Co-op Style.